today on Ag News Daily. Grow intelligence uh, in the business of agricultural data, and grow intelligence has developed the world's most extensive agricultural data platform. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I am Mike Pearson. Today I'm reporting from the Iowa Renewable Fuels Summit, but I'm joined not by Delaney Hal, but by Madison Honkamp. Madison, how you doing today? I'm good, Mike. We don't have class today, so I'd say it was a pretty good day. <laughs> I hope you're somewhere staying warm, staying out of this bitterly cold weather. Yeah, it's really it's cold and windy. That's what makes it the worst. Yes, it is just miserable all the way around. Listeners, if you're outside, if you're taking care of livestock, be careful. Dress in layers. Take plenty of breaks to get inside uh, the house or a heated truck or tractor. And don't be a tough guy here over the next couple of days. <laughs> we don't want any popsicles in our listenership. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> no, because if you're froze, you can't download any future episodes. We want you to keep downloading, exactly. listeners. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I'm here at the Renewable Fuel Summit, and it has been uh, pretty interesting to me. You know, there's there's a lot of talk. Obviously, ethanol is hugely important to Iowa's economy. It's hugely important to most rural states' economies, or it has become important over the past couple of years. And across the board, the speakers today talked about 2018 as being one of the most challenging years for renewable fuels uh, that they can remember. Basically, you know, we got Scott Pruitt issuing the small refinery exemptions. We've got Ted Cruz kind of waging war on the RFS, trying to limit RINs prices. Couple that with the, you know, the China trade disagreement, which has limited their ability to import ethanol. And all of this, plus really tight margins for ethanol producers, has made 2018 or made 2018 a real challenge for the industry, but just as everybody was talking about how bad 2018 was, they're all pretty optimistic as we look out to 2019 and especially 2020 that things are going to be getting a little bit better. Madison, do you burn ethanol when you're driving around? I don't actually have a car. Oh, well, we <laughs> so, need to get you a vehicle and get you burning some ethanol. I know. I know. That is what my parents use, though, so. Perfect. Perfect. Well, good. So you're helping out whenever you ride with your folks. Yes, exactly. There you go. We can uh, we can chalk up a third of your parents' ethanol usage to you <laughs> as a passenger. Yes. Well, I've got an interview with uh, Kelly Newenhouse. He's a farmer. He's active in the uh, the biofuels industry. We'll play probably tomorrow or Thursday here from the IRFA meeting. And uh, in the meantime. Madison, today is our Tech Tuesday. We'll have a good discussion with Jim Hannigan from Grow Intelligence. But before we get into that, we got to talk news. What's the biggest news headline you've noticed for today? Today kind of seemed like a slower news day what I, with what I was finding. Mm-hmm. Um, but one um, article that I found was um, all of the... Uh, government payments to farmers are hitting um, a really the highest level um, it, for more than a decade of trade assistance being provided to producers. Um, and it says here that it's roughly $17.2 billion in farm programming spending is estimated for this 2019 fiscal year. 
And this doesn't include disaster assistance that Congress is considering for producers um, that were affected by hurricanes and wildfires in 2018. But uh, a bill was passed by the House that would authorize $3 billion in agricultural disaster aid. Wow, so, so that number is just going to go up. Exactly. Jeez. So it's just going to keep billion. adding on and on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you said this and was the most in more than a decade? Uh, roughly a decade. It hasn't been this high since 2006 when it did reach $18.2 billion. Wow. So we're not quite at the highest, but for this decade it has been. Jeez, yeah, it has been a challenging year mm-hmm. for a lot of growers, and I bet a lot of them are going to be excited when those checks finally start mm-hmm. showing up in the mailbox because any money is good money in this environment. Exactly, and it even it does say that they are trying to kind of compensate farmers for the loss of exports through soybeans and other crops due to the tariffs, and they will pay out about $9.8 billion in 2019. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yep, we are talking big numbers. And now that the government is back open, those checks will be going out. So, listeners, you still have about a month. Well, you've got about 15 days yet till February 15th to get in to your FSA offices with your proof of production and sign up for those MFP payments and uh, hopefully get a, little, get a little rebate from Uncle Sam. And exactly. <laughs> Madison, I've got some other news coming out of USDA. It does sound like we will be getting our supply and demand estimate report on schedule February 8th. So just about a week from now, well, a week from Thursday, we'll be taking a look at those numbers. The January report uh, has been canceled. They're just not going to release it. There's no sense in releasing data that's now a month old. They will be reporting on crop production, quarterly grain stocks, and several of those other January reports, but we don't know when. USDA, of course, they've only been back in the office now two days. Um, it's going to take them a little while, I think, to get all those numbers figured out and get those reports you know, actually relayed to the, to the public to those of us so Mm -hmm. we'll keep listing as soon as we hear when those reports are going to come out we will report them here on the podcast yeah it it is it's been really difficult i feel like for a lot of farmers especially with this government shutdown and how everything hasn't been flowing as easily with all the export export in tariffs and everything yeah i think not getting those export reports has been a real challenge it'd be nice to get something to spark these markets one way or the other just to get some movement going. But uh, we'll talk about the markets here in just a little bit. What other headlines do you have for us? Um, I have one for trade with China. Um, So the National Pork Producers Council is urging the United States and China to kind of resolve their trade differences in the even ask China to make a minimum of a $3.5 billion purchase of U.S. pork over the next five years. Mm. Um, China is the largest consumer of pork in the world, making it the top market for U.S. pork exports for the past several years. And even in 2017, the U.S. pork industry shipped $1.1 billion of product um, to China, making it the number three export destination for U.S. pork. Absolutely. And I'm going to tell you something. I won't tell you who I heard this from because I don't know how much this information is supposed to be public. So I'll just say it's, it's an anonymous source told me this. 
um, they had a meeting with Ambassador Branstad over in China, and he said, based on what he's seen and the pork producers he's talked to, the African swine fever outbreak in China could be the one thing that forces China to the negotiating table this year. Ambassador Branstad believes that it is really bad, and uh, mm -hmm. they don't have much of a handle on it so far. So $3.5 billion, that might be easier easier to get than, than we think. Mm -hmm. And even if they keep up with like the 2017 numbers, that's still only one point however many billion dollars a year. But that that is still a lot. But. Absolutely. Anytime you're talking numbers and they start with a B, that's that's a lot. Exactly. Billion, bazillion, yeah. badrillion. All those are big numbers. Anything with a B is a big number. Yeah. I'm not sure that badrillion is a real number, but if it is, it's big. Yes. Well, um, Madison, what else do you have for us today? Um, so just kind of a, to add on to the, with the pork industry, um, this was something I, interesting that I found that a research team from Purdue University is doing a $2 million five-year study to focus on neonatal piglet survival. And actually 30 to 35% of pigs born die before reaching the market. And this creates such a huge impact to farmers because they are losing that product and they aren't able to take it to market and then obviously make money off of it. So they're trying to find a way to improve swine mortality rates. That is really cool. To me, it's shocking that the number is still that high, 30 to 35%. Mm -hmm. Gosh, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to see kind of how they were trying to figure it out, but it just, they're mostly just working with a different team of nutritionists um, and veterinarians to kind of see different behavior and genetic um, specialties that they can come up with, I guess, uh, to improve pig survival. And you said this is going to be a five-year study out there at Purdue? Yep. Yep. A five-year study. Well, hopefully we can get some of those authors on here as the study gets closer, yeah. maybe in four or five years, and kind of see what they've learned and how <laughs> farmers might benefit. Yeah, and they are actually um, also adding um, a project here at Iowa State University and Kansas State University to kind of help with the study at Purdue. And it is being led by Iowa Pork and the National Pork Board. Okay. All right. Well, mm -hmm. we'll keep an eye on both those studies. Anything we can do to help the farmer's bottom line is what we want to see done. Exactly. Well, I've got just one other piece well, of news here. Oh, sorry. What were you going to say, Madison? I was going to see if you had any more news. <laughs> well, well, as a matter of fact, I do. I have one more piece of news. We've talked about the U.S. shipping soybeans over to the EU. That's one of the places the European Union has tried to jump in. They want to improve relations with the United States, so they've been buying a lot more soybeans. Something I didn't realize before, when you crush those soybeans, you end up with soybean meal, which, of course, is used for mm -hmm. livestock feed and anything that needs some protein. And then, of course, you get soybean oil. And that oil typically gets blended into some kind of a fuel, a biodiesel type of thing or something. Well, due to the rules in place in the EU, 
all those beans that have been imported into the EU and then crushed, they've had to ship the oil back to the U.S. because the EU had a law in place that wouldn't let American soybeans be used to create soybean oil. Well, the good news is the EU, the Commission, the European Commission, announced today that U.S. soybeans can be used in biofuels in the EU. So this is big news. It's not going to drive a whole lot of additional demand, but it does make U.S. beans more competitive because now the people that import them can use them for mm -hmm. both meal and oil. So I think this is good news. It's another sign that the Europeans want to get off on the right foot with President Trump. Yeah, and I didn't even know that soybeans could be used as fuel. Absolutely. Biodiesel, man, okay. that's what it's all about. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a new thing. Yeah, very cool. I've learned a lot about biodiesel and ethanol here at the Renewable Fuel Summit. <laughs> well, Madison, I am out of news. Where do you sit? Do you have any more stories for us? I just have one more. It is about dairy farmers and the farm bill. Um, basically, they just are kind of encouraging President Trump. Um, the National Milk Producers Federation is encouraging Trump and Secretary Purdue to kind of fast track um, dairy programs with the farm bill to kind of improve those milk prices and help them make more of a profit this year, unlike last year. Gotcha. Now that the government's back open, let's prioritize mm -hmm. prioritize those dairy farmers because they are in a crisis. Exactly. Well, I tell you what, Madison, let's see what, what the price of milk did today. Should we jump in and take a listen to the markets? Let's do that, Mike. All right. And our markets are brought to us by our friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, they can help you manage your marketing risk. Just give them a shout, 312-277-0050, or visit them on the web at zaner.com. And it doesn't look like we saw a huge flow of money into the commodity markets today. We've got a lot of red on the screen. Starting with the corn, March corn was down two and a half cents at 377 and a quarter. The May contract down two and a quarter to close at 386 even. Soybeans, March down four and a quarter at 919 even. The May contract also dropped four and a quarter to close the day at 932 and three quarters. In Chicago wheat, the March contract was down five and a half cents at 513 and a quarter. The May down six on the day to finish at 519 and a half. Jumping over to livestock, February live cattle up seven and a half cents at 126.4750. The April contract up 42 and a half to close the day at 127.80. In feeder cattle, the March contract dropped 10 cents at 144.25, while April was up 10 cents to close at 145.70. Mixed trade also in lean hogs. February contract down 65 cents at 57.32.50. The April, down, excuse me, up 22.5 to close the day at 62.55. Over in the dairy market, February class three milk up seven cents on the day at 14.05. The March up 11 at 14.35. Our hashtag Tech Tuesday discussion is with Jim Hennigan from Grow Intelligence, a company that stepped in during the government shutdown to help growers and anybody else in the market get a handle on agriculture data. Well, folks, for today's Hashtag Tech Tuesday, we are talking to Jim Hennigan. He is the Senior Vice President of Corporate Agribusiness for a company called Grow Intelligence. Jim, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Mike, uh, thanks for having me on. Nice to speak with you. 
right off the bat, tell us a little bit about what Grow Intelligence does. Grow Intelligence uh, is in the business of agricultural data, and Grow Intelligence has developed the world's most extensive agricultural data platform. We cover uh, many, many uh, crops and countries in, in our data coverage uh, in that data platform and business, and we provide that data to all different types of users, be it farmers or cooperatives, uh, food companies, seed companies, um, producers, consumers, whoever they might be in the agricultural supply and demand chain. Now, I've got to ask you, there are a million sources of ag data out there from governments to private analysts. Why did why was Grow Intelligence founded when there's already so many different sources out there? We were founded really to, to help aggregate all of those sources um, at, a, at a global level um, because the the activity of going getting agricultural data, you know, normalizing the data, making it available and useful is is quite extensive. It's it's difficult. Um, data sets can really vary in terms of quality, ability to access those data sets, and then interpret them from there. So our business model is premised on finding largely government data sets, you know, from whatever government agency might provide those uh, data sets, uh, cleaning the data up, making it normalized in a in a common search. Uh, capability, and then providing that data on our database and our platform. So our, our business is trying to provide the data in a more streamlined way using, you know, all kinds of modern techniques from, you know, different types of uh, search and, and, and cleansing algorithms to, uh, um, you know, other, other tools that allow us to take the data and make it available to, to users. And one of the things I find fascinating about what you guys have done at Grow Intelligence is you take the data that's available, you clean it, you, 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 you do everything you just described, but then you're also able to make predictions based upon it. Can you talk a little bit about some of the predictive services that Grow Intelligence has put together? Absolutely. We, we do exactly that. We do analytics on top of that data that we've, we've aggregated and normalized. Um, we do things like uh, yield model projections. So uh, we've built a suite of machine learning models to forecast supply, and we do it for demand as well. Um, but we have um, different yield models that have been running that have proven to be quite successful in terms of their um, ability to project yields on certain things like U.S. corn and U.S. soybeans. Uh, today we have fully-fledged yield models on U.S. corn, U.S. soybeans for yield, uh, in-season yields that we produce we project and we update every day uh, throughout the growing season and then all the way to final. We have uh, yield models for Argentine soybeans, um, Indian wheat, Ukrainian wheat. We have a, a few others that are in our pipeline to, uh, to launch. We have also been doing um, demand modeling to, to complement the supply modeling that we've been doing. And then we've done things like putting all the modeling together and, and put out a, a full model set of supply and demand um, last week, uh, we, we made our first attempt at, at putting out a, a fully-fledged grow agricultural and supply and demand estimate globally for corn, soybeans, and wheat. Um, we did that in response to the U.S. government shutdown, which um, uh, has stalled uh, key reports from the U.S. government, including the, the World Agricultural and Supply and Demand Estimates. So we, in our best efforts, tried to uh, replicate the, the process that um, U.S. government does and, and provides in the WASDE estimates with our version um, to be at least you know some some data out there for people to use and and and, and to fill in the hole the best we possibly could. 
Absolutely. Now, when when you guys are working on your estimates and your predictions, how how do you how do you determine the accuracy of your estimates? I suppose is my question here. Do you end up trying to estimate what the USDA, in the case of the U.S., will be releasing whenever these reports do get released? Yes, and and we do it off the of historical data. So we we go off of you know a wealth of historical data. We we run models. We fact test them. Um, we make sure that you know we can we can validate the uh, the model through final USDA numbers and estimates um, through the season, and um, and that's how we do it. And so we you know, we are predicting USDA final yields in the case of U.S. corn and soybeans in our yield model. Now, you talked about some of the data sets that you use, and I'd like to go into a little bit more detail because Grow Intelligence, what I've found in in poking around the website and exploring some of the work you guys have done, you're not just using historical data. You guys are incorporating all kinds of new sorts of imagery. You're incorporating new types of of data sets that I haven't seen incorporated by the USDA, at least. Can you tell us a little bit about what all goes into your modeling? Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, even within the USDA, we have a lot of data from different USDA agencies that maybe every you know, uh, user out there might, you know, they might not be aware of. I mean, we, we get data from USDA, you know, National Agricultural and Statistics Service, the NAS agency. We get it from the Farm Service Agency, which a lot of farmers are aware of, um, things like the Economic Research Service, the Agricultural Marketing Service, the Foreign Agricultural Service. So we get a lot of data from a lot of you know, underlying USDA agencies that roll up to the you know uh, the main estimates that people might see regularly out there in the marketplace. We also get data from other government agencies, um, Canabe from Brazil, uh, the Argentine Ministry of Ag for Argentina, the Chinese Ministry of Ag, the Russian Statistics Service Rostat, uh, Ukraine Statistics Eurostat, um, Eurostat for the European Union. Um, we get it from uh, different exchanges like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the CME for price data. Uh, we get trade data from the International Grains Council, IGC. Um, and we get data for production, supply, import and export data sets, consumption data sets, price data sets. So we, we try to span the whole, um, the whole supply and demand uh, run. So we have data available from all these agencies for those different line items in supply and demand. Now, when you take all of this data and you roll it into your predictive model or your estimates, is it going into some kind of a black box and you're just spitting out the results? Or do you guys try to have some kind of a, a transparency or, or can folks understand the methodology? We're, we're very much into being transparent and having an open methodology. It's part of our mission. It's part of our ethos. You can see it if you go to our website. You know, we, we release a lot of what we do, how we approach the modeling out on our website. We provide um, uh, academic style papers, you know, explanation on our yield models, you know, how we approach our yield models, which inputs we use for our models, how we arrived at the outputs, um, the research we did, you know, the sources we cited in in our research and our modeling efforts. Um, We're very open and transparent about what we do on the modeling. We're very open and transparent about the business. I mean, we want to build trust we want to build respect out there by doing that um so while a lot of the work that we do is i guess proprietary it's a lot of hard work but we're very open about how we how we approach them and 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 we and we go about our business 
Well, tell me a little bit about Grow Intelligence as a company. How long have you guys been around? We've been around since 2014. So the business was uh, founded and is run by uh, Sarah Menker. And she set the business up in 2014. And we've been growing since. And um, we're up to uh, roughly 60 people split between here and uh, in New York City, uh, where I am today, and uh, Nairobi and Kenya. Interesting. Why Why Kenya? What was the approach there looking at the African continent? The, the business was originally set up in Nairobi, out of Nairobi by Sarah, to uh, tackle the problem of, of difficult agricultural data in Africa. Um, you know, there's all kinds of agricultural data available in Africa and different countries in Africa, but the data is it's it's difficult to source. It's it, it requires a lot of work to, to aggregate the data, to normalize it, and to put it on a standard that like we might be accustomed to here in the U.S. So the the pilot for the business in terms of the aggregation, the normalization, the cleansing, the provide you know providing data in a platform that was hubbed and piloted in Africa initially. And then we've gone to a broad commercialization of the business globally here out of New York more recently in the last few years. Fascinating. So really, a lot of these tools kind of got their trial by fire in that much more difficult African data environment than they did here, you know, working with the USDA or CONAB. That's correct. Now, so four years, five years now, Grow Intelligence has been around. You've developed these suite of tools. Where do you see the company going in the future? What are some of the things you've got under development that uh, you're pretty excited about? Yeah, we are. We're really excited about just adding to the adding to the data platform, adding to the database. You know, adding more sources across many crops and country pairs that we can. We can find good sources of data for and do that hard work of cleaning that data up and making it accessible to users on our platform. So our work is by no means done. I mean, we have a lot more sources that we're looking at to, to bring into product for a lot more commodities, a lot more countries. And uh, we think that will have a lot of benefits for all kinds of users, you know, whoever they might be, you know, farmers, cooperatives, merchants, processors, food companies, seed companies, wherever they might be, you know, be it here in the U.S. or down in South America or over in Europe or over in Asia and down in Africa, you know, things like that. So um, we've got a lot of work. You know, we have um, a lot of, uh, you know, excitement about the the plans we have here, and especially we've got it laid out well for 2019. So, um, you know, we're looking forward to it. Now, let's say one of our listeners or a group of our listeners want to become users. Jim, tell me a little bit about the cost. How are you guys making money off this product or these products? Yeah, um, so you know, we are targeting you know, large users um, you know, in terms of the access to the, the, the database itself um, and, and trying to, you know, basically um, commercialize ourselves that way um, through, you know, let's say big corporates in terms of, you know, food companies, seed companies, trading companies, cooperatives, whoever they might be or whatever they might be. Um, and then we're also trying to provide um, access, you know, at a, at a at a very low cost point, if not a free cost point or zero price to the, the consumer. Um, and we just embarked on that you know, plan as part of the government shutdown. So uh, since the government shutdown, Grow has been offering uh, free subscriptions to its web-based product so people can get in and see agricultural data and hopefully replace some of the data that's not been available from the U.S. government through the shutdown. Um until the fundings are stored, we're offering those three subscriptions, and then um, you know people can see the data that's in there and access it uh, seamlessly. 
Um, so you know, right now we're, we're providing that to, to anyone that wants to go to our website and sign up for Grow. How do we get to the website? Jim, what's your web address? How can we get signed up? Yep, you go to uh, www.grow, G-R-O. And- well, again, Grow sent me an email, and they said they are going to continue to make their data free to farmers. So be sure to check that out. Even though the government is back open, all of their data sets will still be available. So be sure to take advantage of that. It's always good to have another set of data uh, to you know base your decisions on. And Madison, if any of our listeners want to go through some of our past data, our past episodes, where should they go to do that? Well, they can find us at agnewsdaily.com and on Facebook and Twitter at agnewsdaily. That's exactly right, folks. Be sure to check it out. <laughs> and with that, Madison, should we let the people go? Let's let them go, Mike. <laughs>